Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. As you can see, we're on location this week and our brilliant expert guest this week is a newly appointed New York editor of The Spectator USA, Melissa Chen. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello. Thank you for having it is me. So well, thank you for having us. We're actually in your friend's place <laughs> yeah. right now. Uh, thank you for making the time on your trip to London. Thank it you. is good to have you here. For anyone who doesn't know who you are, we've, you, we've had you uh, on our radar for quite some time uh, for to, to talk to. That surprises to. me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I caught myself thinking it's a very stalkery thing to say halfway through the thing, yeah. but I meant for us to talk to you of course, on the show. Of course. Um, uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about who are you, how are you where you are? What has been the journey that leads you to sit in this chair in front of these cameras? Um, well, so I'm originally from Singapore, born and bred, and uh, which in and of itself is a bit more unique. I think you probably rarely have any guests from Singapore. Mm. Um, and I made my way to the US maybe when I was 17. I always said I came for uh, education, but I stayed for the civil liberties. Mm. Um, Singapore is pretty repressive as a, as a society. And I grew up under conditions where, you know, I knew what it was like to, to not be able to speak freely. Um, so I've always been very pro-free speech. But that having said, I mean, no, no complaints growing up there. It was one of the best places to have, you know, had a childhood. Mm. A very prosperous little country and kind of interesting on the political spectrum as well. Not neatly defined as left or right. So that also informs my own worldview in politics mm. pretty much. Um, and so I came to the U.S., um, studied, actually, I did science, so I was a scientist for quite a few years, and um, then met um, an Iraqi refugee by the name of Faisal, and we founded an NGO together. We deal with um, sort of Middle East issues, translating texts of the Enlightenment, um, popular books by Stephen Pinker, Sam Harris, all into Arabic and making them digitally available for free mm. for anyone who wants to read them, mm. Arabic, Farsi, and Kurdish. And the idea is to challenge um, orthodoxy in the Middle East, challenge censorship, and, and try to bring in plural ideas, right? Mm. So that's that's what I did. And uh, recently joined Spectator USA because mm. they finally, after, I mean, it was a long time coming. It was founded in 1828. And here in, in the UK and finally went over to the other side um, and in print as well. So you'll uh, be able to read me um, and all my musings and political, you know, ramblings on, on Spectator USA. So. Well, that's actually one of the reasons we've, we're keen to have you on the show because we have been reading your ramblings and your musings. Oops. And you've been uh, quite clear about your views on China. And you're right. Han Chinese, am I right? In um, I'm half, yeah. Half, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's an issue that a lot of our audience have been clamoring for us to start addressing, which is Hong Kong and China, China. more broadly. Right. So let's dip into that. I, I remember we were talking before we started the show when Donald Trump was running for president and, you know, people making fun of him because he was talking about China, making it a big issue. But from what you've written, uh, it, my sense is that you are pretty comfortable that it is the major issue that is confronting the United States and more broadly the Western world right now? The, well, the entire world. The, the China issue is is really kind of the, the linchpin issue of our time. I think it's it's the new Cold War. It's it's the new dividing line on, on where people stand in terms of what kind of world do we want? Do we want a Pax Americana or a Pax Seneca? Um, what world order do we want? Do, are we going to abandon the liberal world order that was established after World War II? And what's going to take its place? That's really what China represents. And it's, it's the way things are evolving is, is pretty interesting. Countries are lining up and taking sides in this, right? So Russia, China, there's this new axis, and then there are the new allies. And, you know, the question of, for our time is, well, which side are the people who live in the free societies like we do, what, where are they going to stand? And what is the situation like in China at the moment with regards to Hong Kong? Well, I mean, it's so hard to find out what happens in China because it's everything is controlled. Like mm. state media is the only media around. Um, you don't have, you have, you know, basically Facebook, Instagram, all these social media companies are not allowed in China. So it's, ah. it's unless you know people there and mm. talk to people on the ground, it's pretty difficult to get any word out. Um, Tell us about the Hong Kong issue. Like, just for anyone who saw a news report once three weeks ago 
and or the, some people are protesting Hong Kong. Just break that down for us okay. for anyone who doesn't know anything about it. Mm. I've been to Hong Kong a couple of times. It's a great place, some lovely people, but that doesn't necessarily mean I know anything about it. And that'll right. be the case for a lot of people as well. So Hong Kong has been for the past four months sort of engulfed in protests. Mm. Um, they've, they're calling it the pro-democracy protests. If you are following on Twitter, those are the hashtags that are trending. Um, and it, every weekend almost, you know, you have throngs, I mean, really throngs, one in, at, at its peak, one in seven Hong Kongers were on the streets, um, taking to the streets, for the most part, part peacefully protesting, but they have been violent escalations every now and then, mm. but they are disruptive. They do disrupt, you know, train schedules and even mm. sometimes the airport sentence. Mm. Um, but what they're protesting or what they were, what it started out was that it, it started out as a protest against an extradition law mm. that Hong Kong tried to pass. Carrie Lam eventually, who's the exec- chief executive of Hong Kong, eventually canceled it. Um, because of the protests. Like several months in, it was just getting way too crazy. And what that extradition law would have allowed was anyone that basically China wanted could be extradited from Hong Kong to face trial in China. And the thing about trials in China is that it's pretty much up to the whims of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Mm. And, you know, if you're a dissident, if you are a bookseller who has been selling sort of you know, books that were not sanctioned, you could just be disappeared mm. and, and end up in mainland China for show trials. That has happened before the extradition law passed. So with it, this now allows this to happen under a very legal framework. So this was a clear violation of the treaty, the joint, you know, the joint treaty signed between Britain and Hong Kong when uh, in China when Hong Kong was handed over in 1997 because mm. it was a British colony for so many years along with, um, and Macau was another colony as well. Mm. So in the end, um, they canceled the extradition law, but but the protest sort of morphed into something a bit bigger. It became about wanting universal suffrage because it doesn't exist there. Uh, it, it became about accountability because the, the police were actually really brutal to the protesters. And so they were demanding for, for some accountability for that. Um, and I think there are five core demands of, of, the, of the protesters. Um, one of them is actually not about independence. So it's mm. got nothing to do with actual independence. The Chinese state media will call it a separatist movement. Mm-hmm. It is not because it's not one of the five core demands. In fact, I think the only... Um, the only people that are saying that are, are people buying into the apologetics of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Mm. And do you think part of the problem is, well, a lot of the problem is, is the fact that until 1997, Hong Kong were, was part of, you know, they, they had freedom, essentially. They, they did. And in mm. fact, one of the first pieces I, I wrote about this was actually for Aereo magazine. Mm. Um, Helen Pluckrose was my very gracious editor. And a former guest of ours, of course. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I uh, wrote about how, because at the time, you know, the, when the protests first started, kind of people were very confused because, well, the Western media was very confused or they, they didn't seem to know how to address this. But the Hong Kong protesters were waving the British flag, the Union Jack. They were waving the American Star Spangled Banner mm. and they were singing the national anthem. And to see, you know, the former, in, the inhabitants of a former colony raise a colonial flag was very jarring to woke eyes, right, mm. of our time. Mm. So it was it was confusing. And I wrote an article about how post-colonial theory um, kind of affects how we see the the protesters and, and their plight and, you know, the fact that we can't really process that mm. right now in, in modern terms, at least in the West, Western media. Um, and And that if it wasn't for the British legacy, there would be nothing to protest about, right? So that is one of the complications of this. I mean, to even talk about maybe one of the things that British rule brought to Hong Kong that was worth holding on to, which is a point that's very difficult to make today because decolonization movement and everything, and that scene is just something that was a very nasty period in, in human history, and there's no other way to look mm. at it, zero. Mm. But here was a bit of a contradiction mm-hmm. that that the protesters were were holding up a symbol of, of freedom and and had it not been for British common law brought through colonial rule that they would not be fighting for 
the very thing that they are fighting for now. Mm. And the interesting thing about you talk about the empire, actually one of the great ironies of this whole de-post-colonization, all this stuff, is that Britain actually has a great relationship with its former colonies, many of them. And people in many of those countries have a, a tremendous amount of affinity and a sense of loyalty and co common purpose and common values with Britain. Right. Uh, and Hong Kong is a great example. I have, I have so many, I play a lot of basketball. I have so many friends from Hong Kong that, that are big fans. Uh, but I, I think Hong Kong and some of the other things you've written about, which is the NBA, which we'll get onto, um, they're kind of like test cases on the West's willingness to stand up for what's right versus stand up for what's comfortable or for what's economically advantageous, right? Right, exactly. So, uh, characterize for us the U.S. and perhaps the Western response to what's been happening in Hong Kong. Has, have, the, have the British, American governments been strong enough in supporting those people? Have they supported them at all? Um, I would say that what's interesting about the Hong Kong issue is that mm. it is one of the rare issues that drew bipartisan support in Congress, at mm. least lip service. Right. Mm. right. So you had even Senator Elizabeth Warren coming out and supporting the Hong Kong protesters. And, you know, so are many people on the right, like Marco Rubio. So there is at least consensus verbally, but in terms of passing resolutions or supporting the trade war, there's a bit of a divide. Um, I, think, I think the left is definitely um, more critical about the trade war, whether, is it, whether it is because it's Trump perpetuating it, I don't know, because it's one of those things where I do remember a time when the Democrats were a lot more in favor of protectionist trade policies. Um, whereas you see the flip where now the, the conservatives are actually very pro-trade war, that we need to do this to sort of stem China's power. It's going to hurt them more than us. This is an issue of national security. And therefore, we should prioritize national security over economics, over what's going to be comfortable. We're going to mm. lose probably, you know, jobs, GDP's economic growth is going to be sluggish because of it. But it's a worthwhile trade-off because this is a national security issue. So that's where the right stands on the trade war. Um, and then, of course, Trump supporters are just all in, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm. if you talk to, well, I have friends that are journalists, and some of them talk to farmers out in the Midwest. Um, they said that many Midwesterners who grow soybeans know that, well, because of the trade war, China's not going to be buying them. But they kind of see that as a necessary bullet to bite, mm. um, which is... Which is interesting to see that kind of response. And, and this is a term that I always hear bandied about and people reference it. If you were going to explain it in a very clean, succinct way, what is a trade war and what is that situation between America and China as of this moment? As of this moment. Okay, yeah. but so for the trade war is what Trump had implemented was a, a series of tariffs, some of them incremental, but mostly on agricultural products and, and other um, United States exports. Uh, into into China, um, and likewise, he also had tariffs on imports into the United States to protect certain industries, make it difficult, basically, for both countries to trade. It penalized. The theory was that it penalizes China more, and therefore, because it's going to hurt them more, that they would come to the bargaining table um, to talk about other things. And and you know, Trump is always. He, I mean, he in fact, he's been campaigning. For, um, this has been one of his campaign promises that China's been treating us very unfairly. Mm. Um, also in the labor markets, you know, we need to push back on them. It's been unfair trade practices. Look at the account deficit. Um, so he's been kind of consistent on this, actually. Mm. And the fact that he's kind of made this a central piece right now of his, of his agenda is very much consistently in line with what he's been saying, even when he was campaigning. Um, where it is now is that they've kind of agreed not to escalate the, the trade war currently. So I think the, there is an agreement between China and the United States. Um, and last I remember that the tariffs that are still in place to, to be enacted in September and November are still in place. But for now, the trade war, seem, there seems to be a temporary truce. Yeah, by the time this goes out, this could be yeah, yeah. change. It's just to, such a quickly evolving situation. Yeah, and any spark like the NBA situation right. could just make it worse, and that happens so quickly. Well, before we get onto the NBA, uh, I have listened to Donald Trump talk about China quite a bit. I've never heard him really say that much about Hong Kong. Is that because I've been listening to the wrong thing, or is it 
or is it a big issue in his in his mind well, do you feel there was one thing that he did say that you know was a very positive mm. uh, development for for people who are on the hong kong side he he said that it would be very bad for china if they took any military action against hong kong so if there were troops rolling in or anything there was a bit of a a warning that it would be bad for china what that meant no one knows but it was a tweet as usual <laughs> so i'm sure it was well considered right so i think a lot of people are disappointed that he couldn't say anything more but mm-hmm. on the other hand i i understand that he has to you know consider a lot of jobs i mean i wish he could be far more forceful than he has been um and and sort of pushing for things on the on the hong kong supporter side mm. But at the end of the day, Hong Kong is going to go back to China in 2047 mm. officially. That one country, uh, two systems, that's going to be abolished in 2047. What is really the end game for the mm. people of Hong Kong? I mean, it's you know the longer this draws out, really, it's China's advantage just because of the terms of the treaty and what's going to happen either way. Mm. So it's it's hard to see what what the goal is there i guess what it's highlighted to the world is the reality of what china is correct and china's huge power which is where we come to the nba because for anyone who didn't follow the story daryl mori who's the general manager of the houston rockets uh made a comment supporting the protesters in hong kong he actually just tweeted a photograph and right. the photograph said stand for freedom mm. fight with hong kong right or fight for freedom stand with hong kong uh, and the the nba immediately I don't think they censored him, but they certainly made it clear that they didn't support that message. They pulled back. They apologized to the Chinese people. Yao Ming, the famous Chinese basketball player who used to play for the Houston Rockets, ended his relationship. Uh, you know, you had other players who play for the Houston Rockets now apologizing to China. Uh, and uh, the Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, talking about how actually America is just as bad as China. <laughs> right, when asked about that. Crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. And what it showed and what it highlighted is actually the NBA, which is a huge sport in America. Its American fan base is like a tenth of the size of its fan base in China. In China. Mm-hmm. So uh, many American, even entertainment industries now, are beholden to Correct. China. Yes. That is the power that China now wields over us. Right. And you've written quite a bit about this. Right. Um, there are many ways that China's infiltrated um, and, and, and is able to influence our economic systems, mm. even academia. It's pretty scary. Um, but, uh, you know... But tell us more about that. Well, I mean, the thing was, historically, the, the, the thinking was that as China, you know, liberalized its economy and introduced market reforms and got more wealthy and we started engaging with trade, um, in trade with them, that eventually they'll have no choice, especially with the internet. They're they're going to have to open up, mm. you know. Um, once new ideas kind of reach their shores, and along with rising affluence because of of market reforms, that China is just going to allow political freedoms to to creep back in and slowly open the country up. That by far <laughs> was was one of the wrongest bets of mm. our time. I mean, if we look back, probably on the last maybe 20 years, that was probably the the worst calculation we could have made. Hmm. Um, not only did it not pan out, it, it got worse. I think China has built a, a system that is semi-capitalist, it's state capitalist for sure, but it remained autocratic in almost every other facet of life. But now it has technology to, to, to almost make that you know, authoritarianism even more efficient and even more totalitarian because technology is just this great enabler. And now, which is what the NBA issue has been showing and other things like its control of Hollywood, um, it's exporting that to the United States. I mean, that's that's the scary part. It's that they're able to influence from afar what, you know, what people beyond their borders can think, can say. I mean, the fact that they could get Daryl Morey to kind of make this follow-up groveling tweet that, oh, you know what, this is just one perspective out of uh, many interpretations of the Hong Kong event. Mm-hmm. And and that was just such a, you know, it's, it's just terrible to see mm. because you know where he stands. It was pretty clear where he stood before. And now this poor guy had to basically backtrack mm. because of business implications to, to his team. Um, which were huge. I mean, they're not insignificant. I think every single Chinese sponsor pulled out of the Houston Rockets. Mm. The CCTV canceled the, uh, their games 
Uh, yeah, I like how the Chinese national broadcasting system is called CCTV, <laughs> right. yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Tencent, which was you know, basically in a contract with the NBA for $1.5 million over five years to digitally stream the games, canceled the screening of the preseason games. And, and then you had shoe companies pulling out. And it's just, it was a whole boycott. I mean, talk about cancel culture. Mm. This was the ultimate cancel culture, right? And, and even Nike stores in China were pulling NBA and Rockets merchandise. And it's like, this is Nike. You, you know, you have your American company. Have some, I mean, for lack of a better word, balls. Mm. Don't let China neuter the West. Mm. It's it's kind of ridiculous. Well, it's easy to hate Trump, isn't it? When you're when you're a woke company, right? Yeah. And, and exactly. So Nike's like that, but so was the NBA to mm. some extent. The NBA previously had used the All Star Game in in North Carolina that was going to be um, played in Charlotte, North Carolina, to pressure the North Carolina government to to sort of do something with the bathroom bills, like to introduce gender neutral mm. bathrooms. And the NBA has always been in a way, I mean, to their credit, I think, um, allowed its players to speak up, whatever it was politically. Right. So you had players like LeBron James um, and others, like even Steph Curry, who had been critical of the president. They never wanted to go to the White House if they won mm. um, the championship. Mm. But they were critical about the United States for race relations, mm. inequality, and things like that. And they spoke out. Even the coaches, Steve Well, Kirk. LeBron called uh, Donald Trump a bum. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, but Obama also called Kanye a jackass before. Remember that? No. So <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, but there's more. I mean, Steve Kerr has been outspoken on gun control. Correct. Immigration. Uh, immigration. Yeah. Both him and Greg Popovich, Popovich have talked about race mm, stuff. Exactly. So the NBA has allowed people to speak. But Correct. the moment China right. pops up, suddenly, suddenly... It was not okay. Yeah. Right? And, the, and, and that's the thing. Because it costs them nothing to allow woke mm. sort mm. of activism in the league. Right? Yeah. They, it did not cost them anything. Mm. In fact, it might even help. Yeah. Mm. But when it came to China, it actually cost them. And mm. that's where they failed. I mean, to the credit of Adam Silver, at least the commissioner, he seemed to at least say, we're not going to sanction the Rockets. They're allowed to say whatever they want. That's what Adam Silver said in a press conference. However, the official apology, uh, the official tweet after the NBA, uh, by the NBA themselves, their statement was, frankly, for me, left. I mean, it left much to be desired mm. because it was kind of different in Chinese and English. And the oh, Chinese really? tweet yeah, came out a lot more aggressive, saying apologizing for hurting the feelings of the Chinese people um, and said that Moray's comments were extremely inappropriate. Mm. So there was a lot more. Uh, they definitely took a value stand against against what Moray said mm. and and then also acknowledged that it hurt the, the you know, feelings of the Chinese people. Mm. And that just reminds me of the kind of sort of landscape we have to navigate here where offense is basically enough for us to kowtow to outrage culture. This is outrage culture, mm. but the consequences are much bigger. So. Well, it's the work, neither the work movement nor the Chinese like freedom of speech, do mm. they really? Can you imagine... <laughs> Uh, hurting 1.4 billion people's feelings. Yeah. You think we people get upset with us when we're on stage we say something controversial. I yeah. know, it's, oh. a, it's a type of reach we can only dream of. <laughs> but that's the thing that the Chinese government does. It's, it's, it's that it tries to present, the Chi obviously it, it presents the, the Chinese people as completely monolithic. Hmm. And with control of media, of everything they can read and access and entertainment, you get something pretty close to that. You yeah. know, you get something pretty close to this complete uniformity of thought. Yeah. Complete well, conformity. And if you don't, you get sent to a re-education camp. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. For or you just disappear. <laughs> or you just disappear. Yeah. So, so what is like life like for an average citizen in terms of, let's say, living in somewhere like Beijing, Shanghai? What are they allowed to do? And what are they sort of not allowed to do when it comes to things like freedom of speech, expressing your point of view? Everyday things. So for starters, I would say that in general, Chinese people and culture is pretty pragmatic. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm. if you have your first few tiers met and met pretty well because of all the affluence in China, nothing else really matters. Um, it's materialistic. 
you basically are working to, to you know, I mean, look at look at the luxury market. It's conspicuous consumption in China. Mm. You, you basically, in like certain you know small locus of 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 maybe Beijing or Shanghai, you have countless Louis Vuitton. Like you know, I don't know why a small area needs four Louis Vuitton stores, but there it is. And and that says something you know about about what people value and chase after, and also why the luxury brands actually kowtow to China a lot. Dolce and Gabbana. And recently, I think it was Versace had to apologize because I think they had they listed cities that they were in or countries that they were in, and they listed China and Taiwan and Macau separately. Mm. And China said, "Excuse me, those are all China, so get rid of that." And they did. But life there is is you know I mean there's a huge middle class, and and people are only starting to get used to new money. Um, they eat well. They enjoy, you know, the good life. I mean, a huge disparity, by the way, between the cities and not cities. Mm-hmm. Huge, um, and that is often overlooked because everyone thinks of China as this future, but there is a huge, you know, futuristic kind of like beautiful skyscrapers. But there is a huge disparity between the rural and and the, the city folk. Um, but the only thing that you can't do is not criticize the government. Not, you know, there's. This, it used to be that there were the three T's. So you couldn't say Tiananmen, you couldn't say uh, Tibet, mm. um, and the last T was I can't remember now Taiwan. Sorry, right. um, and now of course the the three T's have grown into other things um, that they are sensitive. For example, Winnie the Pooh cannot be said or referred to because um, Xi Jinping, who is now leader for life, a ruler of the Communist Party, um, somebody had kind of pointed out that he. Bore a striking resemblance to Winnie the Pooh, so now all references to Winnie the Pooh on <laughs> on Weibo, on, on WeChat, any anything mm. in China yeah. is now scrubbed. Mm. Which is why, if you watch the latest South Park episode, I, I don't want to have, I don't want to reveal any spoilers, but Winnie the Pooh features quite a bit. In yeah, <laughs> and, and they that, really went after China. That they, yeah. they really did. Yeah, it reminds wow. me of that. Uh, there's a dictator in Turkmenistan. Uh, I think it's Turkmenistan. Yes, he, he renamed Super. all the yes. months after his like mother. Uh, after his mother, he renamed the son after his dad, and then he gave each day of the week like a new name. Just, <laughs> it just felt like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, I mean, we joke about it, and I kind of listen to you talk about it, and. I mean, what we're talking about essentially is a, is a country that is run by a, a life-appointed dictator Correct. that imprisons, imprisons political dissenters, uh, that in many cases harvests their organs for donors. We, there are some reports of this. That is projecting its power through spy networks, through cyber warfare, yeah. through business, as we've just talked about, around the world. It puts Uyghurs Correct. in concentration camps. It, all of these things are happening, and really, until about a month ago, very few people were talking about it. Correct. And I guess my question is: Is that because doing business with China has been so good for what you might call the globalist elite that it was really well? They were fine with that; they didn't have a problem until China started becoming a problem, as it has been more recently. I, I think there are a few factors. One is, I mean, China. I think Xi Jinping only got. Um, his term really got extended to eternity only in 2017. So that was a more recent. I think China, the, the Congress that gathered in 2017 was kind of the the period where where it woke most people in government up mm. to at least like, okay, they're remaining on this autocratic path. Mm. Since then, they've become more belligerent in terms of territorial disputes, um, claiming you know islands and 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 well, building areas, islands, yeah, in mm. in the yeah. South China Sea, yeah. which has really angered many regional um, countries. So Philippines, Vietnam, Singapore are really angry about about what's happening in their corner of the world because, well, they can directly see China's increasing ambitions Mm. and are very wary of that. Um, And I think since then, you know, slowly there's been an awakening, but it was kind of remained in the political realm. It wasn't really until, I think, like you said, Hong Kong, that... Mo- that many people really started paying attention to all the broader issues. There, there might be another reason why you know people were hesitant to sort of diss on China. I think it was 
partly a fear of being racist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, if had it been um, Russia doing the same things, no, no qualms there to criticize Russia. Yes, Russophobia, mm-hmm. big problem. <laughs> right, right. And, and it's also, it's easier for Western countries, white countries to be criticizing fellow white countries than it right. is to be critical about, you know, this is the problem with the rubric of seeing everything through people of color mm. and intersectionality. By the way, are Chinese people people of color? Um, Asian Americans are not now, but, but <laughs> yeah, I think... It's because they do well. They're honorary, <laughs> they're, they're honorary white people in some regards, but, right. but Chinese very much so. Right. Um, and, and by the way, Chinese state media loves to play race card and loves to play victim. Really? Yeah, Doesn't they, it? they absolutely play the victimhood culture. So in, 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 so when you if you go to school in China, uh-huh. you are taught from a young age through their state-enforced education about the opium wars, about the hundred-year humiliation, about how the West made China sell Macau and Hong Kong. Mm. And so that's why returning Hong Kong was such a big F you to yeah. to the past. So they do play up their, you know, their humiliation at Western powers' hands because they want to try to drum up patriotism. Because once they do that, I mean, think about like if you built like a Uma, Chinese Uma, which mm. was also a subject of another piece that I wrote for Spectator. Um, where basically it's like a hive mind. All you need to do is just press the button of patriotism and like the Chinese zombies will just rise and just attack and just, you know, embrace, come to the same position. And now the government has unilateral um, power to basically do what they want. Mm. And what do you think is going to be the Chinese program in the coming years? Can you just see them wanting to expand their power base? Yeah. and get their tentacles as widely spread as possible. Yeah, and they're going, I mean, especially through technology, they, you know, with, if Silicon Valley do, does not act on principle, and I'm worried about that, it's going to get worse. Um, you, we're already worried about censorship on social media platforms, but once they're in bed with China or have Chinese investment, how are they going to act? Right. You know, and, and I think my biggest worry is actually AI. It's... China is spending, if you look at in all the areas where China's putting money on and in um, AI, they're outspending the U.S. in terms of investing mm. and developing the technology, AI companies. And what's going to happen when that technology really becomes ripe is they're going to have first dibs and the power to, you know, effectively either export their techno surveillance state mm. to to the rest of the world. It's interesting to me because we've had uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren on the show, who's a former advisor to two U.S. presidents, a good friend of ours. Uh, we had Jim Reichards on the show recently talking about some of this. Um, the more we talk to people, the more terrifying it is. And the more I kind of look at, you know, Steve Bannon's obviously a very controversial figure, but I've listened to a few of his interviews about China and about the need for economic nationalism, about the need to protect America. And I'm like, well, I can see why people are are going over to that side of things because it is a really serious threat to our way of life, isn't it? It is. And I think Trump has expanded what he calls the national innovation um, <clears throat> security base. So he's actually starting to expand com- like the, the kinds of companies in which he's considering, um, you know, sort of preventing trade between or dealings between or at least scru- having more scrutiny on mm-hmm companies with that kind of dealings with China Um, because this is really a rising concern and apart from economic sanctions what else do you have Mm. military options I mean as far as that goes it's one of those things that everyone wants to kind of stay out of and so the only choice left is is really economic Mm. and China's playing the same game they know that and that's why they're using um, think of all the propaganda the, the way that they've really managed to, you know, infiltrate Hollywood because of just buying out Hollywood studios outright, um, smuggling their their message into movies. And, and because you have buying power, you're able to sort of say, all right, Ricky, you remember this movie? I think it was Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there was a monk. It was the, the character in Dr. Strangelove was a Tibetan monk uh, played by, I'm really bad with actresses and and actors, but Tilda Swinton? I yeah, think? Tilda Swinton, yes. Okay. Uh, eventually was moved. It, she played him because they couldn't have a Tibetan monk in the story because it's one of the three T's. Right. You're not allowed to talk about Tibet and 
And that's just a sensitive issue. So she, her character was written in and kind of changed, modified to appease Chinese censors. This has happened so many times. I mean, I don't know if there's like a website cataloging all the ways in which Hollywood has cowed out to China, but there should be. Mm. There should be a website cataloging every single company from Delta Airlines to Qantas Airlines and Marriott Hotels who fired people or you know capitulated in the same way. Because the effect is, I mean, it's growing. Like the people that are just, you know, being um, sort of victims of of this kind of really, it's Chinese political correctness. It's it's you know, this is our orthodoxy. If you do not conform, it's well, you're going to pay for it somehow. And there's been quite a few notable examples, quite famous examples of Chinese celebrities who have disappeared. For yeah, months on end. Exactly. And in particular, there was one actress, I can't remember her name, but she was she was in quite a few Hollywood films and she just vanished. Right, right. And I had a, a friend of mine who was Miss World Canada. Um, her name is Anastasia Lin. She's of Chinese descent and she did very critical um, of the Chinese government. She actually was one of the major activists sort of bringing attention to the organ harvesting mm. issue and also the treatment of the Falun Gong at the hands of the Chinese government. Um, she, the Miss World competition was slated to have taken place in Beijing. And um, because it was there, she couldn't go. They, they actually canceled her passport. They banned her from the country. So she couldn't even compete in her own pageant. And the worst part was they started going after her family. Hmm. That wow. So and the, that's what, you know, if you look at autocratic regimes around the world, Turkey's uh, Erdogan, China, CCP, that's exactly what they do. I mean, Say what you want about the West. One of the things we don't do is, is this, like, we'll go after your family if, if, if you were a dissident. So, for example, Edward Snowden. Mm. His family's not affected. Mm. His family's not disappeared and kidnapped and tried and, and harmed or, or hit their livelihoods destroyed. And they're not jailed. He's responsible for his actions only. And it ends there, mm. right? Individuals. But that's not the case. They, in, in China, they use this... You know, if you're if you're a member of the Chinese diaspora, chances are you have family there. Mm. Lucky I don't, mm. so I can say what I want. Mm. But had, I I couldn't if I had you know one or two relatives that were living in China, they would absolutely be gone, mm. just based on three articles I had written so yeah. far. Oh, it it's scary. It's absolutely scary stuff. Uh, so what what do you think the West and the United States particularly needs to do uh, in response to this? What can the West do now? I think, I mean, for, I, I actually was a huge supporter of the trade war um, as we need to make China feel the pain economically. I know it's going to cause us pain too, but it's one of those things where if we don't use that, I don't know what else. The other thing is businesses, right? So not just the government, but really businesses need to be more aware of this and and take responsibility for for standing on values, not surrendering those to profit motives. Um, mm. There are other trading partners that we can. I know you won't have access to the Chinese market, but I don't think it's worth it. Mm. I don't mm. think the end result is going to be worth it when all of us are sitting in gulags. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I, it's, I don't know what price these people are willing to pay, or maybe mm. they're just trying to kick the can down the road to the next generation to deal with. But seeing how... China runs its own country. If you know that that's going to be what's in store for the whole world, do we want to go there? Mm. Mm. And will we ever accept, you know, could we have a boycott, divestment kind of system from China? Something like that, you know? Mm. But this needs to be talked about and, and not kowtowing, especially to their, you know, what they're doing with like trying to force people like Moray to, to cancel tweets and to change their minds. What South Park did, by the way, brilliant. We need more of that. Mm -hmm. um, in one episode, I think more people were educated about Chinese influence in Hollywood, um, Chinese influence everywhere. Even the Uyghurs, the plight of the Uyghurs were actually featured in a South Park cartoon. Mm. And we need more people in the entertainment industry to kind of tell these stories you know, sound the warning bells um, and, and assemble, I don't know, an alliance of 
people that just do not want to live under a world order that China controls. Um, I was reading an article recently saying that actually our impression of China as being this financial giant isn't strictly true and there's real significant weaknesses in their economy. I mean, is that true? And are they actually grinding to a halt economically? Yeah, numbers are hard to trust from an authoritarian country like China, mm. right? They fudge things. Um, and also, they're, I mean, they're able to use their currency to sort of manipulate how mm. things look. Um, I would say the other thing that, that I read recently, which sort of supports your theory, is that China's a severely aging population. And so by 2033, the number of people that are in a certain working age range in the United States is already going to outpace the number in China. Hmm. And so, therefore, we don't really have that much to worry about because their economy isn't growing or, or is going to... It's not the economic juggernaut that we, we thought it was. Um, I've heard about that, too. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who... I, I host an economics and comedy festival every year. And there's a lot of people who come there. Is there anything funny about economics? Uh, <laughs> there can be. <laughs> if you're prepared to laugh at the, at the world ending, then yeah. Um, you should be a comedy reviewer. You would try to into everyone's heart. Is there anything uh, funny about economics? The dismal science, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, you, she could be a Guardian reviewer. Who doesn't yeah. find anything funny at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just the Brian Logan of... of yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, a lot of people there were saying essentially what China has done is they've allowed, they've created essentially a, a, a fake uh, amount of money within China, which they've then used to create massive capacity, overcapacity of steel production and other things, which they then export around the world. And as a result of that, businesses go out of business elsewhere around the place. And then they end up being the monopoly in that particular field. So. And coming back to this whole idea of economic nationalism, it's really, uh, it seems like China has been unapologetically waging an economic war right. on the West. And we've been like, oh, no, free trade is great. You know, right. as soon as they get all, you know, they get their car and the whatever, they'll suddenly chill out and become all democratic. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is just absolutely that is not happening. I will say that free trade, you know, if it's free trade, um, China wins. If it's fair trade, the United States wins. Mm. That's exactly Donald Trump's message, ironically, isn't it? Ironically. Yeah. Are you a Trump supporter, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I did not like it when he got into office. Mm. I absolutely find his personality troubling, repulsive mm. for me personally. But I don't, I never, I, I never really support candidates or pol like, I, I don't support things that are like just, all right, I'm pro Hillary or I'm pro Trump. Because what if they did something that you agreed with? Mm. That you know, what if Trump was good on, say, advancing the cause of LGBT equality? Then you're gonna because you were anti-Trump. Now you have to oppose that, which we do see that a lot. That's exactly, that's exactly, I'd love to see that tweet. But that's exactly how to be tribal, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've always gone by there are things that Trump has done I like. There are mm. things that I absolutely do not like, ex mm. especially right now with what he's doing with Kurds and pulling out the military. Do not like that, mm. but. Um, especially abandoning our allies that helped us to fight ISIS. Mm. Um, but on China, he's been actually pretty good. And I cannot imagine any other president being as strong on China mm. um, as, as he has been rhetorically um, and, and also just in terms of, of policy. I really like him to say more about Hong Kong and, and do more, but I'm not sure what that is. And if, if you can't propose a solution, then clearly all the smart people in the White House, you know, are, are putting their brains together to figure this out and, who knows? And what do you make of this argument that, I mean, and I say this about Russia all the time, the one advantage of a dictatorial system is you have time on your side. I, so yeah. they can, first of all, yes. th as you'll probably tell us better than we know, China is going to be funding election campaigns in the United States. Both for of, sure. Right. Uh, and they can just wait for this president to go and then they find someone who's weaker. Right. Right. Uh, to to cave to cave to their demands, right. right? And if you think of the ongoing impeachment trial, mm. I, I think that will end up China's celebrating, right? They're really? actually going to be really happy about mm. about Trump leaving office, because um, at the end of the day, China's a you know is a very it's steeped in honor culture. There's this notion in in Chinese culture about saving face, mm. and Trump has no shame, and he really does not allow China to save face. He, he speaks ill of it. He, he basically really rankles China exactly where it hurts the most. 
Um, and because he doesn't play by the rules and he's just abrasive. Um, so he really annoys China on a level that's almost visceral culturally. And, you know, the, the question for, for foreign policy experts is, is that a good thing? You know, does China behave better when we're nicer to them? That's a, but over the years, it's proven that that's not the case. We've, we've been nice to them. We've traded with them. We allowed them into the WTO. They didn't play nice. They never did. So what's, you know, maybe it's time for a different sort of tactics. I think that's what Trump brings to the table, at least in China specifically. Hmm. And it, it, you talked earlier about an axis uh, and the allies coming back to the new Cold War. I guess the, the universal constant during the Cold War is that both parties kind of knew that the Soviet Union was yeah. an adversary. Right. Is that where we need to get to, do you feel, with China? I, th I think so. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most striking things that, that to me at least, was when the, U the UN was in session and they wanted to criticize what was going on in, in Xinjiang, which where the Uyghurs were being imprisoned. And you look at all the countries that did not sign the rebuke against China. It was majority Muslim countries. Pakistan did not sign it. Many of the Gulf states did not sign it. And, and the people that were the most vocal about the mistreatment of Uyghur Muslims were New Zealand, Australia, the United, United Kingdom, the United States, you know, the evil West. Mm. And, and somehow the narrative that, that they are the ones who are Islamophobic, mm. you know, and, and somehow the majority of Muslim countries, even Turkey and the Uyghurs are of Turkic descent, mm. did not stand up for them. I mean, this is like, what are we living in this upside down world right now, in a way? Yeah. And you can see how China, because of the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. has many countries basically by the balls yeah. because mm. of the sheer amount of investment they have in, in their countries. I mean, just today or in the last two days, President Xi Jinping was actually in Nepal because he, you know, I think it was a $500 million investment in Nepal. And, and this is a country that's, you know, where the, the Tibet is there and Dalai Lama got excised. And you see the welcome that they gave him. And he gave a press conference saying that if Hong, if, you know, if Hong Kong continues to happen, that there will be uh, crushed bodies and bones. He said that in Nepal and the warm welcome that they gave him is pretty much related to the investment that they, he was bringing to this country. Hmm. And, and with the Belt and Road Initiative, investments in Africa, now even South America that they're expanding to, who knows whose influence, who knows whose loyalty the Chinese could buy? It's scary. And that's why the West needs to make a stand. It's funny that you bring up the idea of racism and stuff like that, because as someone who's from Russia, I know this, I have a lot of friends from China and Hong Kong. Like we talk about the West being racist and whatever. Yeah. You want to see what happens when Russia runs the world? You want to see what happens when China runs the world? Exactly. You want to compare those two? I, uh, I'm pretty comfortable with British racism, thank you very much. That level mm. is fine by me. Do right. you know what I'm saying? It's what Peter Boghossian was saying about scales, mm. right? I think yesterday in one of his talks, he talked about, okay, so you want to talk about the patriarchy. Where is, say, Saudi Arabia patriarchy? <laughs> because we want to qualify what you mean by yeah. by we live in this, you know, mm. in these times. Mm. So, I mean, as we are aware of, of, you know, all these woke antics here, mm. I think a sense of proportionality is in order. There is cancel culture, outrage culture, and all these, and patriarchy and rape culture on a very different scale elsewhere. Mm. And we lose proportionality when we are focused on, on issues here that, by comparison, are are not are just not as severe. Yeah, well, I'm guessing rape culture in South mm. Sudan is a lot worse than an American <laughs> college campus. Right, but not to say it doesn't exist. No, yeah. we should always have yeah. to say that. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. So Jim Records, a previous interviewee of us, actually said that a lot of American companies are starting to withdraw from China. They're yeah. going to different countries. Is that the way to deal with this? To go, okay, if you're not going to play ball, we're going to withdraw our support. Yes, absolutely. Um, go to go to Singapore, go to Indonesia. There, there are a lot of other Asian democracies 
near China that have the rule of law, that enforce intellectual property rights, that play fair, um, do that. You know, the issue obviously is that then they won't have access to the Chinese market. So the willingness to do that is probably very low if you're going to be, you know, if you have fiduciary responsibilities to your shareholders. So I hope that that's what they do, but I can't see that being across the board.、Mm. Okay. It's just too lucrative. Well, on that happy note,、um, <laughs> Melissa, the, the last question we always ask is, what is the one thing that we aren't talking about as a society that we ought to be talking about? Democracy、mm. and whether or not authoritarians actually have an advantage because they are、mm. in power longer.、Mm. So Thomas Hobbes, <clears throat> Leviathan,、mm-hmm. and how that plays and how that contrasts with systems that we have that we assume are. Good systems, liberal democracy, right? This is kind of the struggle of our time.、Um, obviously, I grew up in Singapore, and we've had one party in power since independence in 1965. And the country went from third world to first world in my own lifetime. Mm. Mm. It's it's almost nation building at its best,、mm. and it was done by having this longevity of having. If there was a tumultuous system in which the parties were changing and It's unlikely that could have been possible, and so one of the things we don't talk about is perhaps you know what are the merits of these two systems. I mean, we talk about an impending clash, this new clash of civilizations, world orders. Well, what did they get right, and can we design systems, even as we cherish you know our liberalism and our democracy here, that can at least give us some of that?、Mm. What do you mean? Oh, can you give me an example? Well,、um, so for example, is is the system that we have in Congress, where especially now exacerbated by the media cycle, where you basically have to campaign every two years, it seems、hmm. that that cannot be good for. That's why our potholes are not fixed. That's why our airports suck. You know, one of the things I definitely agree with Trump was that he said that、um, LaGuardia and Newark. Airports were like third world countries. Ex-、uh, airports, I mean, and then you go to places like Bangkok, and they've got these sprawling, you know, glass, beautiful airports around the world.、Um, some when I first immigrated to the United States, it felt like a bit of a downgrade. I was like, this feels like a third world country in many respects.、Mm. Um, and with with long term planning, you can really do things like urban planning, land use, you know, regulation that that are just far more. They're farsighted. They they assume that people are actually going to still be there, and and they're going to be there in twenty years, and and they're going to be able to judge and select for for the better ideas、mm. in a way that just we aren't. So, are there systems, policies that can mimic that, but still retain our political freedoms and still retain our right to free speech,、mm. which I think is so 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 important、mm. and cannot be compromised on. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Melissa.、Uh, we'll put、uh, Melissa's Twitter and all the other details in the video and audio descriptions. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys for having. Thank、me. you.、And、we will see you guys in a week from now. Take care. See you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description, or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.